I've been preaching here about 28 years, and I think it's two times that I have not been able to preach on a Sunday morning that I was scheduled to preach because I got too sick. Last Sunday was one of those days. I called Pastor Larry. Actually, it started the week before at Presbytery. I went down to watch my daughter be received under the care of Presbytery, and I really wanted to to last it out, but in order to do it, I kept sneaking off. I found a a place in the nursery where I could lie on the floor with a bunny under my head, and uh, so I was feeling pretty rough, and I called Larry Friday. I said, I don't think I can do this. Can you step in? He said, absolutely, boss. I am in. I'm I'm good for it. Then Saturday, I get a call from Megan. Um, Larry's got a, a fever, and he's getting a tickle in his throat. And so I pulled out my computer and I started grinding away at it again. And we had an agreement. We'd check in on Sunday morning and whoever was less sick, (laughs) he'd preach. Larry won. And uh, by the way, you have a really quite a deep bench of preachers in this church. I hope you appreciate that for him to step up like that. I... Love my team of preachers, and, uh, and Larry really came through. It was great hearing, hearing that ministry. It was also an op- a perfect opportunity to underscore the message of, this, of the text, wasn't it? Do you remember the story from last week? We were in Acts chapter 6, and we were talking about the fact that these, there were a group of people in the church that were not being cared for. It was the Greek-speaking widows who were not receiving a fair distribution of the food. Remember, there were Christian believers, new believers from across the world. Some of them were Greek-speaking, Hellenistic, and some of them were uh, Hebraic. And the ones who were kind of the outsiders, the the Greek speakers, they weren't getting cared for. They were getting passed up on the food. And maybe it was just an accident. Maybe it was a little bit of favoritism. But anyway, it couldn't stand, could it? And the apostles said, we've got to do something about this. And we can't be the ones that are worrying about spreading food around. We've got to preach the word. And so they looked for the Spirit to provide seven men, Spirit-filled men. And, and they prayed for them, laid hands on them, ordained them, commissioned them to this work, and turned them loose. And we re- read that, there, that the, it had the impact that they had hoped for. Because while the... Uh, apostles were able to go about their their work. The the deacons were taking care of everything. And and Luke tells us that the word continued to spread and that the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And listen to this. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So you have this sense of movement of the part of, of of this Jesus movement that's capturing even the religious leaders, the priests of the time. It's an astounding thing that was taking place. And part of the reason that happened was these seven men, we call them the deacons, the first deacons, who were ready to be used in in this way. Five of them, we hear their name and then never hear from them again. They presumably did their job and they disappeared into the mists of history. But two of them, the first two who were mentioned, Stephen and Philip, we hear more about them. Philip is going to become the great next chapter of the story of Acts, but but first of all, we hear about Stephen. It's not a long story, but it is a powerful story. And I'd like to tell you the story of Stephen this morning. Now, Stephen a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. 
However, opposition arose from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria and provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who, who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this holy place, this temple, and change the customs Moses has handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin stared intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? So Stephen, he's a table waiter for the Lord, is pulled in front of the Sanhedrin. This is the same court that only weeks ago arrested, abused, convicted, and handed Jesus over to Pilate to be executed. They hated Christ. They hated, they hated the impact that he had upon them, the, 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 the power that he had over the people. And they thought surely that they, they were done with him when they killed him. And yet now here they have one of these Christ followers standing before them. And he is not only standing there, he is speaking with such wisdom and power that they cannot refute him. They must have been completely vexed by it. And so what they did was what they did with Jesus. They brought false charges against him. They brought trumped up charges. People who came in and offered testimony that was not true. Saying things that they had actually said against Jesus as well. He's speaking against the temple. The two most precious things in, in Judaism was the temple and the Torah. This holy place, he called it, and the law. And so they, the best attack they could bring was to say that they were speaking, that he was speaking against the temple and against the law. That's exactly what they lied and, and said. And so the chief priest, after he hears these accusations, he turns to Stephen and he says, are these accusations true? And Stephen breaks into the greatest sermon in the book of Acts. You know, Paul was Luke's hero. And we have sermons from Peter. We have sermons from Philip. We have sermons from Paul. The sermon from Stephen is the longest sermon we have in the book of Acts. Luke wanted us to hear the whole, the totality of this message. And so this table waiter who stands before this very overwhelming group of men who have proven themselves to be unscrupulous and murderous, this table waiter stands and he begins to preach. And for the next 53 verses, he tells them his story, their story. He talks about a God who found a, a, a man and called the people to be his own people, who took them to a promised land, who brought them out of captivity when they were hidden away, who, who, a God who gave them the law that they, that they might know how it was that they should live. He talked about a God who said, I hate idolatry. 
And about a people who continue to break into idolatry. And so a God who sent prophet after prophet after prophet to remind them to call them back to himself. He talked about a God who did not need to be in a temple built by human hands. And certainly could not be confined to that temple. Even though ultimately he said, all right, go ahead and build it. So starting with Abraham and then with Joseph and then with Moses and then with David and Solomon, he tells them their story, the story of God's redemptive love, his acts of grace in their life throughout their history, the story they should have known. And then he comes to the punchline and it was a doozy and it signed his own death warrant. And now you, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts and in your ears. You, you are the same as your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet that your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law that was put into effect through angels. And have not obeyed it. When they heard this. They were furious. And gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen filled with the Holy Spirit. Looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of the father. And he said. Look, I I have seen heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and began to yell, yelling at the top of their lungs. They all rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man Named Saul. And while they were stoning him. Stephen prayed. Jesus. Lord Jesus receive my spirit. And then. He fell on his knees. And he cried out. Lord. Do not hold this sin. Against them. And when he had said these words. He fell asleep. This is a story from God's holy word taken from the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, meet us now as you met Stephen that day. Make us brave as you made him that day. May we learn how to live so that we might learn how to die. Do that now, we ask in Jesus' name. I would love someday to take every one of you with me to Jerusalem and show you the places that we've studied about. And when we do, we will go to the old city. And on the old, in the old city, there's a great wall around the outside of it. The eastern wall, it's the wall that looks out over the Kidron Valley. And right up there is Gethsemane. And then above that is the Mount of Olives. There's only one gate on the eastern wall of the old city through which you can enter into the city. It's called the Lion's Gate. You can see why. Ancient lines that are carved on the stones above the entrance of the gate. But it's also called by another name, a more ancient name. Do you know what it's called? 
It's Stephen's gate. Why? Because it was out through this gate that Stephen was dragged to a place down below and stoned to death. There's a modern church that sits on the site, but that is believed to be the site where the first martyr, they call him the proto-martyr of the church, died at the hands of murderous men. And make no mistake about it, this was a mob lynching. It was not legal for the Jews to kill their own people. That's why Jesus had to be handed over to Pilate, because only Pilate could execute a death sentence. But in this case, they were so out of control, so enraged by Stephen's sermon, that they took justice into their own hands. Think about the first line that we heard. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Who does that? that this, this, is the, this is the act of, a, of, a, of an animal, a wolf that's coming after its prey. Arr, this is what they were doing. And then at the end when he says that he's seen a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God, that it drove them apoplectic. They went crazy. It's almost like a, a murderous version of what we see on the playground. They covered their ears. They begin to shout at the top of the voice. And they all rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and took him to the place below the gates. And they killed him. They killed him by dropping great stones on him and continuing to do so until the life was beaten out of him. What in the world happened? Only verses ago we are reading about the favor in which the people of God were held. The favor in which the people, the followers of Jesus were held in in the city. What happened? Stephen happened. Stephen happened. Well, how is it that this man who was just a, a table waiter for widows, how in the world could he end up in this spot? Do you suppose that this is part of his career path? said, I know what I'll do. When he was invited to serve as a, as, a, as a deacon, he said, this is a perfect platform for me to really make powerful people mad at me. And I will do that and I will stand before them and I will so enrage them that they will crush the life out of me with rocks. That's, that's my vision for my life going forward. Obviously, when we read the story of Stephen, when we hear the story of Stephen... We know that we are encountering someone who faced persecution, the worst kind of persecution, with unflappable confidence in God. Right? We heard this word before when we talked about Jesus who was unflappable no matter what he faced. And now we have a disciple of Jesus who is unflappable in the face of torturous persecution. But it's worth saying, I think, Stephen didn't set out to die for Christ. Stephen set out to live for Christ. And I don't know how many of us will ever be called upon to give our life for Christ, to die for him, but I know that we are called to live for him. And so I would love for us on this day, when we sit safely here in Little Gig Harbor, I would love for us to learn from Stephen what it means to live well, to live this kind of life. The first thing I think we find from Stephen is this. He was filled with the Spirit of Christ. Would you say that? Filled with the Spirit. And I know I'm beating a horse to death here. 
But it is, in fact, the recurring theme of the book of Acts. They were filled with His Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Again and again and again. Not once, not twice, but many, many times. But especially Stephen. Luke grows to great pains to help us see how deeply imbued he was with the Spirit of God. Think about it. When we read the description of what a deacon had to be in Acts Chapter 6, verse 3, it says that they needed to be men who of wisdom and filled with the Spirit. So the starting point, you know, just to be a candidate for the job, you had to be filled with the Spirit. And yet when we move farther down, we find the list of the seven. He's number one. Always pay attention to that. List order means something in the Bible. Stephen was number one. And we read of Stephen, who's already supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We read that he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Uh, No other deacon is thus described. In other words, even though they're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the descriptor had to be, had to include the fact, here's a guy who's super filled with the Holy Spirit that everyone has to be filled with. Uber charged with the Holy Spirit. Then we see this encounter with these members of the synagogue of the freedmen. By the way, pay attention to the province Cilicia. It's a little, it's a little hint, and we'll talk about it next week. But we see this, this encounter. They're trying to argue with Stephen, who's proven himself so formidable. They cannot stand up against his wisdom, and then it says, or the spirit by whom he spoke. You see that? And then when we drop down to the end of the sermon... He's preached it. They are furious at him. They're about to kill him. And we read, and then Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. And he had the vision that finally drove him over the edge. This man was filled with the Holy Spirit. I felt so empty this last two weeks. I've never been sick this long. And I began to despair of getting better. I had no energy. I was coughing my lungs out. I, I was taking a drug that, that confused me and actually made me feel depressed. And in the midst of all of this, we got word of the death of Cindy's sister-in-law, Anne. 50 years old. Three children. And for a normally standoffish guy, the dad called and said, would you come and see me? So I, it was the only thing I did that day and I drove up to see him and he said, I want to believe this stuff. He said, will you do her gravesite for me? And so I said, of course I will. But I went back home thinking, how can I do this? I've got nothing. There are a lot of people that are not believers in that family. I said, I feel paralyzed. I sat in front of a computer and cried out at it. It wouldn't make any words for me. And so here I was facing this service and I was facing having to write a sermon too and I felt absolutely paralyzed. And I began to reread this story. And it suddenly struck me what I need. What did I need? Duh! I needed the Holy Spirit again. I needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit again, like Stephen. This was not about the clever words that I was going to come up with that would capture these unbelieving people for Christ. This was about me being an empty vessel into which the Spirit would be poured and out of which I would pour upon them. And so as I sat in my ratty, 
recliner. I cried out the same prayer that I've asked you to pray again and again and again since we began our journey through the book of Acts. Have you been praying that prayer? What is the prayer? Holy Spirit, what? Fill me. Holy Spirit, please fill me. I need you. I am desperate and I cannot do this without you. That is always true. It's just sometimes I'm more aware of it than others. And this was one of those times. By the way, God did an amazing thing at that gravesite. An amazing thing. Stephen was one of those persons who was so open, so available, so empty before the Lord that there was nothing filling the emptiness that would get in the way of what God wanted to do with the emptiness, which was to fill him to overflowing with his Holy Spirit. I've said this before and I'll say it again and again and again. I'll preach it to the last day I preach to you, the last day I die. I will say this. When you take Presbyterians, educated, informed, thinking people, and man, you throw in the Holy Spirit and we are a force to be reckoned with. And I want this to be a place known like that for the filling of the Holy Spirit upon our people. Stephen was filled with the Spirit of Christ. There's something else I learned from Stephen too as I read his story of his, the way he lived before the way he died. And it is this. Stephen served like Christ. Would you say that? He served like Christ. He was a table waiter. He waited on tables. He brought old ladies soup. That was what he did. There was nothing in his call about performing great signs and wonders. Not anything in his call about doing miracles. It certainly wasn't anything in his call about preaching before the Sanhedrin, giving testimony to the risen Christ in front of a group of men that were going to kill him, becoming the proto-martyr of the church. No, that wasn't in the job description. He was a table waiter. Just like, well, his master, who told his disciples who wanted to be big shots, you know what? The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just like his master who knelt down at the feet of the manure-covered feet of his disciples at the Last Supper and said, let me wash these clean for you. Nothing very impressive in that, is it, that the Lord of the universe would kneel and serve and in that same humble way, in that same humble way, Stephen said, serve tables for the Lord Jesus. I'd be honored. I'd be honored. Let me do this small thing. And of course, when he did that, things begin to explode. We read that he did great wonders and miraculous signs. It was kind of his side job. He would come in and he... He would give them something to eat and then he'd say, oh, you're sick. Well, let me pray with you. There. Now you're well and you're fed. Up until now, only the apostles were said to have done signs and wonders. Only the apostles. And suddenly, the Holy Spirit democratizes miracles. And those who are filled with the Spirit are suddenly dishing up an apostle-sized miracle to go along with food. When we are filled with the Spirit of Christ, and when we serve like Christ, 
When we say yes to weeding a garden, like that ugly garden out there in the church, or, or yes to serving in day camp, or, or, or yes to, to visiting people in their homes or in the hospitals, when we say yes to these things, we put us in the tradition of Stephen and in the tradition of, of Christ. God takes us in our humble service, and then he does Holy Spirit, extraordinary things in the process. You know, last Sunday when I was sick, and when Megan was sick, and when Larry got sick after agreeing to stand in for me, I began to wonder if this was a spiritual attack. I'm not big on a demon behind every bush sort of thing. I think there's plenty of evil in me to to cause trouble. But, But this was one of those moments when I thought, Lord... Are we under attack? And what is it about this tiny little text, this story about ordinary Christians who are called to be spirit-filled and do something like waiting tables? What is it about that that is so frightening to the devil that he wouldn't want us to preach about it, that he would throw obstacles in our way? And so I asked the Lord, this is the message I believe I got from the Lord. Here's what I think he said. Because our church's numbers are still swelled with those who believe that ministry is done by professionals. Hundreds of us believe what it means to be a Christian is to come semi-regularly on a Sunday morning, sit through the service, and go home. And then leave the work to be done by the paid Christians, the professional Christians. But if this church ever grasped the idea that every single one of us is a spirit-filled, spirit-gifted, spirit-called, spirit-empowered servant of Jesus Christ who has a task for the kingdom, if we ever got hold of that, if those of you who make up the 80% of our 80-20 rule ever really understood this, that the Holy Spirit has a claim on you, that he has you for a purpose in his work, it would revolutionize this church. Too many of us sit back and let too few of us do the work. I have heard some who have turned down opportunities to do a particular job here because candidly they felt it was beneath them. But Stephen, perhaps the most spirit-filled man in the early church, said yes to serving food. Yes to serving widows. And in the context of that, God made things explode. When we are filled with the Spirit, when we're willing to serve like Christ, God does extraordinary things. And then finally, we're filled with the Spirit of Christ. We serve like Christ. Stephen teaches me we, we look up to Christ. Would you say that? We look up to Christ. Say it. We look up. Whatever surrounds you, Especially when you find yourself under attack, when your enemies are furious and they gnash their teeth and rush at you. You do what Stephen did. What did he do? He looked up. Look, I see heaven open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Look at that. When Peter walked on the water towards Jesus, it was only when he took his eyes off of Jesus and looked down at the waves that he began to sink. We know that there will be times of storm and fury and and rage in our lives directed at us at times. 
And Stephen teaches us to live well by lifting our eyes up and looking to Christ in the midst of all of that. As our family gathered for this funeral, there were many who flew in from out of state. And we heard an update to another deep tragedy that we have experienced this last year. A year ago, another family member of ours, a young man, a senior in high school, suffered a terrible accident and was killed. This boy, he had a ritual every day of driving to Starbucks to get his mama a coffee. And they would bring it back to her before he went to school. It was what he did. This was his ritual. And that morning in April 2014, this young man was driving to Starbucks at 7.30 in the morning and he was hit by a drunk driving 90 miles an hour and killed. The whole family was stricken, as you might imagine. But Mama particularly was tormented, not only with the grief at the loss of her boy, but over the guilt for a coffee. She had lost her son. And we found out as we gathered together this last week, the update was that for a year since this occurred, every day she goes out to the site of his death and stares at him. Now she's a believer. She's a follower of Christ. And yet she is so paralyzed by her grief, so paralyzed by her guilt, that she cannot even function. And so every day, She makes a pilgrimage to this place of tragedy and stares down at it. And on one hand, who can blame her? Only those of you who have gone through this can relate to the sense of deep, biting pain that she is experiencing here. But still, as I I heard this story, I couldn't help but think of Stephen. Stephen. How easy it would have been. How understandable. How normal it would have been for him to look into the face of his attackers. Listen to the horror of that. Teeth gnashing. Hands over their ears. Yelling at the top of their face. Contorted in rage toward him. How easy it would have been to lower his eyes and look in the face of such opposition. But somehow he lifted his eyes up and said, Oh, look. I see Jesus. I see Jesus. There must come a time when this poor mama lifts her eyes from the sight of tragedy and looks to Christ who is only, her only hope, her only solace, her only comfort. And as I say those words, I say, how desperately I need to hear this for myself. Because it is so easy for me to drop my eyes down to the circumstances of my life, the things that frighten me, enrage me, attack me. This has been the reality of my whole life, and I have shared that with you from time to time, how easy it is for me to drop my eyes down and look at the storm. And Stephen says, oh, why would you waste that view? Lift your chin Lift your eyes. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. In some ways, this brutal story of a first century martyrdom seems irrelevant 
I mean, it's so long ago, such a far, far distant place. That is, until you look at the pictures that we saw on the news feeds in the last two weeks, and we saw 15 Ethiopian Christians in orange jumpsuits being walked by ISIS butchers along the coastline of Libya to their place of execution. All they had to do was deny Christ. And they wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And every one of these men, these brothers of the Lord, our brothers, shortly after that, their heads were cut off and placed on their bodies. And when I saw these pictures, I wept. And again, the question came to mind, could I do this? Does the Spirit of Jesus have hold of me enough that I could do this? I don't know. I don't know if Stephen knew whether he could do it either. And this is, this is Gig Harbor. This is not Syria. This is not Libya. And we likely are never going to find out whether or not we are willing to die for Christ. But the question surely must be at least this. Will we live for him? We may never be called to this, but will we live for him? Are we willing to live our lives in such a way that it prepares us for whatever life might bring? You know, my favorite verse in this story is kind of a little gem that's hidden away in verse 15. I wonder if you saw it. They saw him and his face appeared to be like the face of what? An angel. How in the midst of that could they look upon him and say his face was like the face of an angel? You can't fake that. You can't put that on. He was bracing himself for what he knew was going to be a horrific death. And they saw not hatred, not fear. They saw the countenance of Christ. I wonder what the world sees when it looks upon my face in times of crisis and turmoil. I wonder what the world sees when it looks upon your face in times of crisis and turmoil. This is a reflection of the Spirit that lives within us. And the more of Christ we have, the more the world will see when they look upon us. Not anything that makes sense according to the circumstances, but something that is sublime, something that is transcendent, something that is otherworldly, because in fact, that's where we belong. We are citizens of another world. So that is my prayer for me, and that is my prayer for you. What would it be like if the people of this church walked out of here so filled with the Spirit of Christ that they radiated His countenance regardless of the circumstances of their life? I want to be that kind of man, don't you? I want to be that kind of person, true and pure, radiant and brave. Don't you want to be brave for Christ?